welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, Jocelyn Gotto, and James Kazina. This podcast is an all-in-one devotional, essential for anyone trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in today's world. Each month, we'll release four different episodes, including stories from the field, preaching, and conversations with special guests. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Well, Tim Costello, welcome to Conversations with Open Doors. Great to be with you, Mike. Well, man, look, I've known of you for many, many years. We have not actually met in person, but as we were speaking just before off camera, you know, my cousin, she's worked for you. One of my best friends in the UK worked for you. And so I've heard all of these glamorous stories about the Tim Costello, but we've lived in the same country. We've never actually met. So this is a great privilege to finally sit here and talk with you today. Well, well thank you for saying that. There's no accounting for tastes, Mike. But <laughs> a delight to meet you. Fantastic. Look, now, most people, I guess, watching this will have known of you, um, maybe either as your time as a pastor with World Vision, but now you're working on something um, with a, an organisation that's really dear to my heart, an organisation I know well, which is Micah. But at the moment, you have got a campaign that I'm seeing blowing up all over social media, End COVID for All. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, End COVID for All is uh, really a a Christian response to a virus that's affecting the whole world. Uh, And we've discovered we're biologically connected. So End COVID for All is saying it's not only over for any of us until it's over for all of us. And we are seeing how profoundly interdependent the world is. Um, It really is a pledge program. So go on the End COVID for All website and sign the pledge to End COVID for All. For Australians who lead often in health, uh, still with our troubles uh, economically, we're doing okay compared to poor nations, our neighbours, where the virus is raging, that have fragile health systems, many of them Christian brothers and sisters getting infected and dying. Uh, So it's really saying our our borders need to be shut, but our hearts aren't shut. And we're going to look up, we're going to look beyond, we want to end COVID for all. So I'd invite all of your friends to go on the website, sign the pledge and be part of the, the activities that are going to happen. Look, it's something that I, I want to, I guess, publicly say in this conversation, but as an organisation here in Australia, the Open Doors really supports particularly that Christian viewpoint of ending COVID for all. I love how you mentioned the borders may be closed, but our hearts need to be open. We, we as an organisation, for 65 years have been standing in solidarity with people who pay a high price for their faith. Now, you add COVID to this, and it kind of doubles the price. So I really do believe it's an important um, message to share. But more than that, in sort of mid to late August, there's some a big night or you're trying to get a collective response. Can you, can you help is. us understand that a bit more? Yeah, so on the 19th of August, although you can work around that date, we're inviting churches to run a, an event uh, if they can meet together with some worship and prayer for uh, our neighbours, uh, for the poor of the world to maybe have a video if they have a church partnership with a partner in Indonesia or Africa or wherever they are, and to say, we are with you and uh, you aren't forgotten, we are praying for you. Uh, Hillsong, who are part of it, are writing some songs and uh, lots of churches are saying, 
This is a great opportunity because Christian faith is international. Right from its beginning, it was multi-ethnic, transcending nation, race, ethnicity, of course, slave and free, um, and therefore just that wonderful insight that neither Jew nor Greek but all one in Christ. So on the 19th of August, an event uh, with a church or a group of friends on Zoom to uh, wear a mask. There will be uh, virtual masks that say end COVID for all. Some of our influencers will have actual masks and there will be a full-page ad in the, uh, in the papers in Australia saying we stand for ending COVID for all in God's name. I love that. A pastor, a persecuted pastor said, the love of Jesus cannot be quarantined. And I think that's a beautiful picture. But what we fail to realise, and part of what it sounds like this campaign is all about, the reality is, although the love of Jesus can't be quarantined, Christians can be. And I think that's one of the wrestles that people who are um, followers of Jesus the world over face in this season, that COVID is yet another tool that countries can use to enforce greater restrictions on people. We've heard stories where Christians are being refused access to medical treatment, Tim, because they're refusing, oh, sorry, unless they reconvert, they won't get it, right? And I think that's an example of how COVID can be used as a tool in persecution, um, that that it really is a horrific um, breach of basic human rights. Look, as the fog, which is a health fog, lifts called COVID for all, we see underneath that fog uh, fundamental fractures and they're the fractures of the persecuted church who never really had rights and authoritarian governments have used uh, maybe justifiable uh, uh, laws to restrict us in COVID-19 to then persecute us and to go further uh, and the, those fractures, of course, we've seen in America a race also. Uh, there disproportionate numbers of blacks dying because they're poorer. They're on the front line in the health services. So whatever existed before, including religious persecution, often is intensified because of COVID-19 and what governments do. That's right. And now, listen, I think that's probably a great starting point for the conversation for today. I mean, one of, one of the things that throughout my years of, of adult life and, and following your um, life at World Vision and even your presence in the media, you've kind of been painted as as a, a hero of or maybe an expert in social justice. It's a word that over the last 10, 15 years has exploded in Western cultures, particularly Christian cultures. Can you maybe, if we use that as a, a kind of deep dive for listeners or watchers today, to let's better understand what that truly means? Because I think it's it's so broad, it's open to liberal interpretation, everyone has a different view of it, but how, how would you define social justice? You know, social justice is uh, what the Bible means when it says the vision of God, the purposes of God is for heaven and earth to meet. Originally that was in the tabernacle, then it was in the temple, and as Christians we know this was in Jesus' own body. Even in crucifixion and resurrection it was bringing together heaven and earth. And Jesus said, thy will be done on earth. Thy kingdom come on earth. So social justice, picking up uh, the Old Testament, is there shall be no poor among you. Uh, Orders 26 times 
to welcome the refugee, the stranger. Why? Because God's face is seen in the stranger. Um, now, when I hear secular and atheist people using the term social justice, I actually smile to myself. They think it came from the Enlightenment. No, blame Jesus for social justice. Uh, his first message, it, I am preaching Luke chapter 4, good news for the poor. His last major teaching before his arrest, trial, crucifixion, Matthew 25. When, Lord, did we see you naked or hungry or in prison? Well, when you visited that person in prison, yep, that was me. And that person hungry, yeah, that too was me. Um, this is heaven on earth. And it's not an either or with salvation, with the good news in Jesus. It's the whole message. It's always been the whole message. Uh, in some ways, Christians who uh, don't understand that the Bible always was profoundly about social justice think it's just secular. Uh, actually, secular people would be more honest if they preached a sort of doctrine of Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche who declared God is dead, said Christianity is a slave religion. It's the revenge of the meek and the poor. No, it's the excellent, the strong, even the wicked who do the best for society. That actually would be a natural atheist position. When atheists and secular pick up social justice, they're picking up Jesus. And in the cross, in the cross, God said even the most shameful death usually for slaves and for people who are riffraff. I embrace, therefore, the most vulnerable, most despised, most humiliated. I, I love. I am on their side. In fact, I have suffered their fate. Now, that has profoundly influenced the West. So even when secular and atheist people talk about social justice, they often forget they're, they're owing it all to Jesus. They're owing it actually to the gospel. So that's how I see it, Mike. You know, uh, to be to be honest, and I guess for, for the people watching this, I want to put my hand up and say I am one of those Christians who have, you know, I've openly said on, on many times, Tim, that Open Doors, we are not a social justice organisation. We're a gospel advancing organisation because I had this view up until, I don't know, 90 seconds ago that social justice was this kind of, secular interpretation of um, helping people that had been picked up and popularized by Christians and um, was in some ways, leading to the next question, was almost like an opportunity for Christian people to hide in doing good things but without mentioning Jesus. I mean, I remember one of the brothers in Central Asia said to me, well, to leave Jesus out of your language only ever paves a wide road to hell with generosity and good deeds. And then when I look around society and culture and I sort of see the increase in popularity of social justice in the Christian world but also the mainstream world, and when you marry that with like a, a culture that's becoming increasingly anti-Christian that suppresses those public expressions of faith, well, is there a risk, I guess, that for some Christians we are metaphorically leaving Jesus, or maybe not even metaphorically, we are leaving Jesus out of our language and we're sort of marginalising our faith expression to being simply about doing nice things and, and good deeds? 
Yeah, look, there's two risks. One risk is the one you said, the Christians who uh, have been caught up in what is just a secularised version of social justice, fail to understand Jesus is the content and the definition of social justice. That's what the cross is, Um, saying the love of God includes the most despised and vulnerable and poorest and weak. You don't get a better content of social justice than that. So you can't leave Jesus out. And if Christians are doing that, they've, they've completely misunderstood it. The second danger is Christians um, often have mistaken the gospel for what is Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism said there's an eternal soul before creation that enters a baby at birth or at conception and the body and life here is basically sinful and that soul which is pure will escape and go to heaven with lots of other disembodied souls. That was never Christianity. That's Neoplatonism. So there, the second danger is Christians who actually haven't realised that it was always the purposes of God for heaven to be on earth. In this body, even in a resurrected body, Jesus has the nail prints in his hand, the wound in his side, saying resurrection doesn't obliterate what happens on earth. It doesn't just remove suffering because actually the resurrected body is still able to eat food and to engage and have relationship here on earth. That's, that's the picture of the Bible. I'd encourage your listeners, if they doubt me, to read the best evangelical scholar, Tom Wright, uh, his book Surprised by Hope, where he just makes the point that so often we, we got into a escape theology that was Neoplatonism, not full resurrection bodily, this worldly good news, heaven and earth uh, meeting as the purposes of God. So both those dangers, I think, are there, Mike. Yeah, look, I'm hoping for anyone listening, um, even already for me personally, this has been um, kind of a rewiring conversation because I had fallen into that. To be honest, I reckon a lot of Christians are where social justice has become that popularised buzzword expression of doing good things. And I think hopefully for anyone listening today, Tim's shown us that social justice without Jesus isn't social justice. In fact, the genesis, the birthplace of social justice is the Gospels. And so that, that's really exciting and also encouraging for me. But if we kind of drill in that little next level of depth where I hope, um, again, for our listeners, it can be an enlightening kind of topic. But in your 40-plus years of uh, pastoral ministry, working with World Vision and now Micah, have you ever seen, I guess, uh, maybe the best way of saying it, Tim, have you ever seen God at work in suffering? Yes. Um, look, suffering in Scripture is uh, sometimes there for God to discipline us, to teach us, uh, to produce fruits of character. The Apostle Paul talks about that. Um, but other suffering is also arbitrary and uh, uh, completely uh, opposed as the plan and purposes of God. So it always depends on what suffering we're talking about and distinguishing it. Um, Look, there's no doubt that when I've been with poor Christians and it might 
come as a shock for those who are into prosperity theology that the most faithful Christians in the world today probably will be poor all their lives. And it doesn't mean God isn't blessing them mm. or isn't uh, giving them, as I've seen, such joy, you know, seeing the joy even in poverty of communities, uh, a kid rolling a tyre and more happy than all the electronic gadgets that we've got today, people who might be underemployed, unemployed, but sitting together, blokes walking together, holding hands. They're not gay, but yeah. there's friendship and girls and sharing of burdens, so community, meaning, joy, uh, in the midst of poverty, which is suffering. Mm. Uh, you actually say, oh, okay, so uh, poverty uh, isn't simply uh, just the, or the absence of poverty isn't simply a recipe for happiness. Now, I, I'll never romanticise poverty because I think God wants us to flourish, but in the midst of it, I have seen joy and community and love, and I see in societies like ours, which are very materialistic, <laughs> even with Christians, self-sufficiency and loneliness and anxiety and lack of relationship and community, uh, and we're not suffering from poverty. Um, so I think uh, in the question you asked, there are some deep mysteries, actually, Mike. How would you define poverty? Poverty, I think, is not having a relationship with God and not knowing why you're here. So the existential angst, I didn't ask to be born. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what the purpose is. That's a huge burden. And to know that God loves you and made you for a purpose and has uh, a calling on your life uh, is to be rich. Uh, you may not be material, materially rich, but to know that is to be rich. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a really important um, definition because, again, when I heard your answer to the previous question, I think a lot of people would be there going, well, you know, Micah and other organisations have these goals of leaving people from poverty, but you're saying as well, Tim, that, well, well that there's joy with these Christians who will always be poor, and, but then you're also saying, no, no, poverty is not just um, an economic wealth-based measurement. There's so much more that is made up of alleviating poverty. And I think in the definition you gave then, there is the opportunity to get people out of poverty because it's not simply about making sure they get better income. It's far more holistic than that. Humans can be profit-maximising animals. They want more income. But it's more true when you have a biblical faith to understand that humans are meaning-maximising animals. Yep. We actually desperately need meaning to know that we are seen, are loved, that someone knows our name, that there is something for us to do. Uh, and this is what the gospel tells us. God has a plan for us, for this world. We have work to do, meaning to do, and relationship to do. So if you lack that, you're poor, even if you're materially rich in Australia. Um, of course, when I say I don't want to romanticise poverty, if as a parent you can't guarantee your child enough calories to get through the day or clean water uh, or education, you know in, in Bible terms that that child carries the image of God 
Mm. And lacking calories, clean water, scars the image of God. It is not the dignity and flourishing that God intends. So it is also working materially so the full image of God, the full potential to be a child of God can be experienced. But it's both and. It's Mm. both the spiritual and the material. It's not either or. And as you are picking up in my talk, I think the mistake Christians make is they go either or. It's always both and in the gospel. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful distinction for anyone listening is that too often we are the either-or Christians, right? We're never the both-and. We're always saying we want a conclusive answer or solution to that problem, but sometimes it's a both-and solution. In your years of ministry, when you've seen the inequitable uh, distribution of wealth, freedom, these kind of things, have you ever actually doubted the existence of God? No, that's those things have made, there's been times I have doubted, but not for that reason. Uh, Those things have made me believe more strongly in God. Um, The biblical explanation for those things just makes total sense to me. Um, Humans are made to worship. If they don't worship God, the true God, they will worship idols. The great idols of our culture are money and power and sex and greed. And when I see corruption, and profound inequality and human malevolence, it reaffirms my uh, understanding of uh, uh, the Bible and its explanation for way, the way the world is. Those things don't make me doubt God. Now, if you're talking about natural evil, why an earthquake here or a tsunami, uh, I don't have answers for that and the classic uh, You know, test, of course, is if God's all-powerful and all-loving and all-good, well, if he didn't stop the tsunami and innocent people died, he's either not all-powerful or not all-loving or not all-good. At the end of the day, even in the book of Job, and it's the first book written really to address suffering, if you read it carefully, there's still not a clear answer. There are things we just have to live with in terms of suffering, and um, I don't have those answers there. But when I see human evil, moral evil, actually it reaffirms my faith in God and description of the fall and why we need God's redemption in Christ. Yeah, I love love that answer. I think, you know, if I think back over, you know, reading the Bible, it's almost like 2,000-plus years ago you would emulate in order to understand so you would sit under rabbinic teaching or whatever it might be in order to learn the ways of faith god religion so forth you you come forward 2000 plus years and it's almost like the society and culture has shifted and what we say is well let me prove the existence to god to you before you make the choice to follow him right and in so doing you kind of take out that element of being sure of what you hope for certain of what you do not see that that trust and that faith element in your expression of faith because what you're trying to do and what i've done previously and fallen victim of is saying hey when i'm evangelizing you when i'm sharing the gospel with you and had my sort of sales pitch on jesus let me answer all of your questions first and tell you why it's all going to go okay before you make your choice and i think that's somewhere where the gospel's kind of flipped over those years that it's gone from being the in some ways the pursuit of the unknown is what drives you forward to being Christians sometimes inadvertently saying, well, no, no, let me try and answer everything before you make that choice. And then inevitably people fall off that cliff of faith going, but man, nothing you said stacked up. 
You know, you told me I'd get the job or I'd get the boat or I'd have the good life. And since giving my life to Christ, my family's turned their back on me. I found life more difficult. Suffering's entered my life. You know, is that something you've noticed? You'll say is that difference in the shift of us wanting to prove God is good to people before they choose him? Yeah, so the, the uh, Greek uh, New Testament word for faith is pistis. Pistis means loyalty and trust rather than knowledge and proof. And uh, the question there really was, are you loyal to Caesar Augustus, whose good news, and that was the word used with the placards put up, is Caesar Augustus through Roman might brings the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, and you'll obey. If you don't, you'll be crucified. (laughs) Uh, um, Are you loyal to that Caesar, that Lord, and that good news, or are you loyal to Jesus Mm. and his peace, his kingdom, that is includes all because God loves all. It's why the early Christians for the first 300 years turned the world upside down. It wasn't that they were better preachers. It's that unlike Greco-Romans, they cared not just for the Christian poor but the pagan poor and the, the pagan sick and the pa- in the plagues. They stayed and nursed them even though they might die. And literally people said, what sort of God is this? Their loyalty to this God, even putting their lives on the line, wasn't just a head knowledge of a a conceptual proof of God existence. It was loyalty and trust that issued in how they lived. That's why they turned the world upside down, because the Greco-Roman world had no parallel. uh, In fact, one Caesar said these Galileans are putting us to shame. They're caring for our poor. We don't give a stuff for our poor. Mm. Uh, so uh, that, uh, that understanding of the cross, that God is there with the most vulnerable and humiliated and the weakest, was revolutionary in Greco-Roman world and still is today. Still secular people fail to understand how when they speak social justice, they do owe it to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Look, as well, well, when we think about, um, again, coming sort of bouncing back to poverty for just a moment, so some of the people that we work with at Open Doors, well, they experience abject poverty simply based on their faith choice. Now, I know, um, at Micah, for instance, your desire is that no one should live in or under poverty, but I guess when, when that solution or the solution to that problem is entirely based on faith choice, How do you advocate for bringing a godly solution? Yeah, look, I I only have utter, utter admiration for uh, those people. You know, uh, when I hear Christians here talking about carrying their cross because, you know, I don't know, they might have an injured Achilles and it's in plaster and that's the cross they have to bear, I want to say, Look at our brothers and sisters whose faith choices have led to being poor. Um, at the end of the day, what uh, God is trying to do is to restore the crippled image of God in us. God loves the image of God, his image, in all of us and wants to redeem it and to restore it. And having that sense of relationship with that God is what we call salvation. In many ways, A really good definition of salvation today 
is Jesus Christ is the, is what it means to be truly human. And none of us are, are being truly human because we aren't living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. Um, so the promise of restoring that crippled image of God comes at great cost because uh, you uh, then pay the price often with persecution. Uh, I, anything I say from the comfort of Australia, Mike, I feel is almost uh, trite in, <laughs> in, in encouraging those Christians, but they know, they know. Yeah, look, one, one, of, the, uh, one of the believers from India who, whom I love dearly said to me, in the West, it's as though you, you're comfortable with carrying the weight of the cross but not walking with it. And I think that was a beautiful sort of summation about the differences between expression of faith here and there. He says, we walk with the cross daily, but he says, you kind of, you know, in your Achilles example, it's kind of like, man, well, you can sort of carry the weight of the cross, but you never walk with it. You stand there complaining about it, but you never take a step. He says, we're <laughs> us with the persecuted church. Well, we carry the weight of it and we walk with it. And I think yeah. that's kind of, you know, an example of what you're touching on. Um, but in, in the line of that, our work, yours and mine, um, do you ever feel like, Tim, that you're fighting a losing battle? Um, yeah, I've certainly had those feelings. Uh, sometimes my kids, uh, I remember when I was campaigning, I still am, for gambling reform because we've got 20% of the world's pokies here and I've done too many funerals of people who've suicided out of shame of their addiction and no one knew. Uh, whether it's gambling reform or other things I'm campaigning for, my kids have sometimes said to me, Dad, is there any campaign you've ever won? <laughs> and it's like I'm always on the losing side. So I totally know that feeling. Here's how I deal with it, Mike. This is God's world. He hasn't given up on it. In all of its brokenness and mess, he loves it. And he sent Jesus to redeem it. I'm not the Messiah. At the end of the day, even when I'm discouraged and feel I'm up against it and having losses, it's really handing it over to God. This is your world. I'm called to be faithful. And it sounds a bit uh, easy to say faithful, not successful, but I really do believe that. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful statement is, I mean, how often would we miscreate faithfulness with success? And I think that's one of the biggest things that plagues Western culture is not only entitlement, the desire for success and the mismatch between that and faithfulness, or maybe even authenticity in outworking your relationship with the Lord. As we sort of bring this into to close, Tim, why would you say, or why do you think that the ministry of Open Doors is worthy of support? Oh, I think Open Doors Ministry is a lifeline to state and show a, a couple of things. Firstly, as I said earlier, that the, the Christian church from its inception has been profoundly international and it is the hope of the world. And for Christians to let other Christians know we're standing with you, we haven't looked away, we're praying, we're trying to give, we're encouraging you, is to retain that international body. And as we know, the world's profoundly retribalizing, turning inwards, saying we're only going to look after ourselves, stuff everybody else. This is what is good news about Open Doors Ministry. Secondly, I think uh, just the uh, sheer fact the Scripture continually reminds us to care for our brothers and sisters. Uh, 
You know, if you read uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 7 and 8, Paul is fundraising. And he's fundraising because of uh, a famine in Jerusalem. And uh, this is as important to Paul, you know, taking lots of time in letters that we call scripture to practically care, to reach out, to help, to say uh, you are not alone. And uh, so scriptures command us to do this and I think Open Doors does that magnificently. Yeah, Tim, well, I want, to th- I want to thank you so much for your time today and more than that, encourage everyone watching this or listening to it to check out Micah and the End COVID for All campaign because the truth of it is, is that we share the common value of loving Jesus, loving people and wanting to help change the world. And so we uh, we love everything you're doing, Tim. We love the team there, um, Matt and all of the guys there that are working on advocating for people in poverty, but also all that you're trying to achieve in the world. And so a great encouragement, a huge thanks from all of us that you will take time today and, um, and share your heart behind what social justice means, but more than that, how it should almost become the genesis of that Christian expression, because it's not a secular thing, It's a Christian thing. And there is one body of Christ of which we're all a part. So from all of us at Open Doors and everyone watching, Tim Costello, man, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you. God bless and keep hope alive. Thanks for listening to the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, Jocelyn Gotto and James Kazina. We hope the life-changing stories and lessons from the persecuted church help you follow Jesus no matter the cost. To find out more, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. I'm your producer, Bethany Ross, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast.